Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. It's hard to believe they're getting ready for Christmas already, but um, our fifth graders and down below leave now. It was interesting, earlier I went into Dawn's Sunday school class and the kids said, what are you talking about today? And I said, well, why do you want to know? Because we're not going to be in there to hear you. We're going to be in children's church. And so I thought that was cool. They wanted to know what I was talking about. And Don said, well, there's a podcast. You can listen to it later on after the service. So I'm not sure how many fifth graders podcast or listen to sermon audio, but um, they're up there. The rest of you can turn your Bibles to um, Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32 is where we're going to be this morning. The Washington Post a few years ago released a study that they had done surveying Americans about how insecure they felt about the economy in America. The poll showed that basically 62% of Americans are worried about losing their jobs because of the economy. 32% worry a lot. 73% of Americans said they're dissatisfied with the economy. And about half, 48%, said they feel less financially secure than they felt a few years ago. I don't think there's ever been a time in our nation in recent history where there just seems to be an air of insecurity in our country. We look around and there's the insecurity of the economy. There's the insecurity of ISIS and the threat of terrorism. There is the insecurity of of rising health care costs. There's the insecurity about who's going to be our next president. Congress is at an all-time low in favorability among Americans. In northeastern Colorado, we're not immune to the insecurity. There's always the fear here in our cult, in our, in our, in our community that the oil and gas industry is going to go south and jobs are going to be lost. There's always the fear that there's going to be bad crops or there's going to be hail damage and, and that the, the, the harvest is not going to be as good as it could be. There's always the fear of the economy. In recent days, in recent months, the cattle prices have plummeted and many people have been affected by that. Everywhere we turn in our culture, there seems to be fearful insecurity. And if not careful, that fearful insecurity can lead us to idolatry. Remember our sermon series that we started last week, The Human Heart and Idol Factory comes from a famous quote by John Calvin in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. He says this, The human mind is a perpetual factory of idols. Men have in almost all ages since the world began set up imaginary idols before their eyes to take the place of God. A perpetual idol factory. 
And our key verse that we looked at last week, and it's the verse we're going to look at, it's just the kind of the key verse that, that holds everything together, is from, from 1 John. It's the very last verse of 1 John 5.21. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Keep yourself from idols. Last week we looked at Romans chapter 1. And we saw how Paul defined idolatry. And if you remember, idolatry is suppressing the truth of God and exchanging it for something that he's created. The key word we looked at last week was the great exchange. You're, you're exchanging God's glory. You're exchanging God's truth for a lie and for created things. That's what idolatry is at its core. And here's the issue. Idolatry can be something good. It could be a good thing uh, that you're exchanging the glory of God for. It could be a family member. It could be a spouse. It could be a job. It could be a a career. It could be something good that you're making the exchange for. It could be something bad, like sexual immorality or materialism or consumerism. See, here's the great horror of idolatry. Here's what happens. Instead of Christ being your all in all, you trade him in for a substitute that you think will be your all in all, and that substitute never, ever satisfies you the way that Jesus does. And you eventually begin to look like what you worship. And we're going to see that illustrated for us in technicolor, in HD, in high definition, in the greatest act of idolatry in the Old Testament, the golden calf. Exodus chapter 32 is the golden calf episode. And here's the main point of that passage. Here's the main point of Exodus 32. It's simply this. And I'm going to have to find some Kleenex, and they were down there with me. And you just pardon me, guys. I've got a little bit of a, of a cold this morning. So here's the main point of the passage. Fearful insecurity often leads you to create, and that'll be on the screen. Fearful insecurity often leads you to create idols that replace the faithful security of the living God. Fearful insecurity often leads you to create idols that replace, and it should be the faithful security of the living God. Now, before we dive into Exodus chapter 32, let's see how the psalmist expresses this idolatry. Psalm 106, 19 through 23. This is what the psalmist says. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot their God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Notice again how the psalmist words it the same way that Paul did. They exchanged the glory of God for an idol. Again, that's what idolatry is at its core. It's, it's trading in, it's substituting, it's exchanging all that God is for you for something else that doesn't satisfy, that doesn't give you the security, that doesn't give you the meaning that you think it's going to give you. So you trade it in and you take what you think is going to give you that security as opposed to God's glory. Now, the golden calf narrative here has basically five main sections. It makes it easiest for us to divide it up and to look at it in great detail. And so let's first of all explore the roots of idolatry. 
the root of idolatry. And we're going to see this in the first six verses of Exodus 32, the root of idolatry. So let's read together Exodus 32. We'll look at the first six verses. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took all the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. What actually is the root cause of idolatry? Why do we commit idolatry? What causes us to want to make the exchange, to exchange the glory of God for something He's created? Well, we see the root of idolatry in these passages. Now, historically, here's what you need to remember in the passage of Scripture here. Israel had only been out of Egypt just a few months. Just a few months before this, they were still in Egypt. So God had delivered them through the Red Sea, had given them manna and quail, had, had given them water out of the rock, and so they'd been provided for, but it hadn't been that long. And so when they were in Egypt, they were face-to-face with pagan idolatry all around them. So it was part and parcel of who they were in Egypt to be around idolatry. And so as they've come through the Red Sea, and as they're walking with God, old habits die hard. Moses has been up on the mountain. He's up on Mount Sinai. He's been up there for 40 days. And he's getting instructions specifically on how to build the tabernacle. And he's up there, and in their mind, he's delaying. He, he's not coming down in a timely fashion. And so the text there in verse 1 says, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron. Now, you don't get the force of this in your English translations, but when you go back and read the original Hebrew language, it really means they gathered themselves hostily against Aaron. In other words, this was like a hostile takeover. It was a mob mentality. They were coming in their frustration. Here's what had happened. Impatience with Moses had led to frustration, which eventually led to anger. And so basically, they mob-rushed Aaron and said, make for us a golden calf. And here's the plaguing question. Why in the world would the people ask Aaron to make them an idol? Why were their hearts so quick to turn from the living God. And here's where we see the root cause of idolatry rear its ugly head. Here's what it was. It was a combination of impatience, frustration, and insecurity. And you can, you can wrap that all together saying it was fearful insecurity that led them to create this idol. What had God promised them? The promised land. God had made a promise way back to Abraham. You're going to have a a nation. You're going to be in a land flowing with milk and honey. You're going to conquer your enemies. You are going to be in the promised land. But are they there yet? 
No. And where's their leader? Who knows what's happened to this guy? He's up on the mountain. He's taken too long. We are insecure. We are impatient. We want what God has promised, so let's do it on our terms. Because we don't want to wait on the living God. We want to do it on our timetable. And here's also what had happened. Just a few days before this, the Amalekites had attacked them by surprise, and they were still reeling from being attacked. So it was a combination of all things. They're vulnerable of attack, they're impatient, they're frustrated, they're insecure. And when those things come together to create a perfect storm, idolatry pops up. When you're impatient... When you're insecure, when you're frustrated, when you're fearful, that's when you tend to want to create an idol. You see, they no longer trusted in the faithful security of an invisible God. They didn't walk by faith. They wanted to walk by sight. They wanted a tangible, physical God they could control. Instead of worshiping God on his terms, what were God's terms of worship? I will speak to you from the mountain with a voice. I will show up to you in a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke, and that's the way I'm choosing to show up. That was not good enough for the Israelites. They wanted a God they could control, they could see, they could touch, they could feel, they could manipulate. And they weren't willing to worship God on his own timetable, on his own terms. So they gave in to the insecurity the impatience, the frustration of not being in control. So what do we do? We'll exchange the glory of God and we'll create an idol because we're fearful. We're fearful. Now, many of us have many phobias. Let me see if some of you have some of these phobias this morning because I'm sure some of you in this room have some of these phobias. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands unless you want to, but I won't require you to. Anybody have paganophobia? It's the fear of beards. Taraphobia, the fear of bulls. Xenoglossophobia, it's the fear of foreign languages. Bataphobia, some of you are like, I know what bataphobia is, it's fear of bats. No, it's fear of being close to high buildings. That's bataphobia. I know some of you are in here, most of them are probably in that room over there that they've left, but some of you may have didascalinophobia. It's the fear of school. Some of you have that isotropophobia some of you must have had some of you had isotropophobia this morning i know it it's the fear of mirrors you woke up looked at yourself in the mirror and said oh my goodness i'm scared isotropophobia <laughs> some of you are really struggling right now because you have geliophobia that's the fear of laughter and then i know a lot of you have lacanophobia that's the fear of vegetables and then some of you here just don't like shakespeare and you have metrophobia you have a fear of poetry i'm trying to lighten the mood here this morning a little bit But let me ask you a question that's very specific this morning. I want you to really think specifically in your heart of hearts. What specifically makes you insecure? Where do you specifically go to find security that's not in God? Do you find it hard to live by faith and not by sight in an invisible God? So here's the amazing thing. In an act of peer pressure... Aaron gives in. He gives in to the mob mentality. He actually makes the golden image. And you get the idea from the original language that he, it, it, it takes a while to do this. 
He takes the, 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 the gold earrings and he smelts it down. And then he has to probably create some type of mold, probably out of wood. And then after that comes out, he's got the engraving stylus that he uses to make the fine detail. So this is not some passive thing that Aaron's doing. It probably took a couple of days for him to actually make the golden calf. And I want to ask a question. I wonder if Aaron ever stopped to wonder what he was actually doing. I mean, he's taking time to melt the stuff down. He's taking time to make the mold. He's taking time to engrave things. Did it ever cross his mind? Did he ever stop and think, what am I doing? What am I doing? You see, he'd been so blinded by idolatry, he'd been so much given into peer pressure that he was willing to go with the crowd and just go with the flow and do this act of idolatry. He never stopped. He never repented. He never said, I've got to stop this. I, I, I'm the leader. Moses is gone. I've, I, we've got to put a stop to this. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. Let me ask you another question. When you oftentimes give in to idolatry because of your insecurity, do you ever stop? And do you ever ask the question, what am I doing? I mean, what am I doing? And why am I doing this? And why am I about to do this? Why am I doing this? You see, idolatry doesn't make you think straight. You begin to do things that you thought you would never do because you're insecure, because you're fearful, because you're impatient, and because you're frustrated, and you want a God you can control, and so the idol is going to give you what you think that security is going to give you. And you never stop and think, what am I doing? Now, let's understand the significance of the golden calf. Now, all of you here in northeastern Colorado that are in cattle, when you think of a calf, what do you normally think of? Actually, the translation in the literal Hebrew is a young bull. It was a young bull. Now, a couple of things about a young bull. Number one, a young bull represented virility, power, stamina, strength. That's what the young bull represented. But also, the bull was the chief deity of pagan Egyptian mythology. So they are making a pagan Egyptian god and a god that's supposed to be powerful and virile and strength. And think about that. What are they saying when they're making the golden bull? What are they saying? God's not powerful. The living God must not be powerful. We need to make a young bull that's powerful. Now that's powerful, a bull, an Egyptian pagan bull. And we see the replacement there in verse 4, that this exchange. He received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, listen to the lie here. Listen to what they're saying. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Bold-faced lie. Who brought them up out of Egypt? The living God, the powerful God. Not this bull, this gold calf. And then Aaron does something very scary. In verse 5, he builds an altar and says, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Does that catch anybody off guard? I've just made a golden bull that says God's not powerful enough, but let's make a feast to the Lord with the bull. That's a slap in God's face. Why not say let's make a feast to the bull? No, he says, let's make a feast to the Lord and bow down and worship the bull, but we're going to act like it's to the Lord. And then you find out what they do. 
There in verse 6, they rise up early the next day. They offer burnt offerings and priest offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to what? My translation says play. Some of your translations may say engage in revelry, debauchery. It has, it has sexual and drunken overtones in that word. Probably some type of loud orgy with dancing, music, and mayhem of all sorts. So what's the root of idolatry? It's usually insecurity, impatience, frustration that leads you to create something to give you that besides God. Now, let's, look, let's secondly look at the result We've looked at the root. Let's look at the result of idolatry, the result. This is in in, in verses 7 through 10. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded, and they have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, have brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. God expresses his anger in their idolatry. And notice the wording that he uses there. In verse 7, he says they have corrupted themselves. Corrupted themselves. Perverse is the word there. They they become perverse. They become dirty, perverted. Verse 8, they've turned aside quickly. It's a quick turn. It's a rapid turn. It's not just a gradual thing. They've they've moved fast here in rejecting you. Verse 9, they're stiff-necked. They're stubborn. They're rebellious. That's what idolatry does. Idolatry results in perversion, corruption, rebellion, and dirtiness, and rapidly turning away from God. And see, here's the issue. Here's the, here's the, here's the, the gravity of the whole thing. They want a God who's powerful. They want a God who's virile, They want a God who's going to lead them. And what do they create? A dumb idol. They can't speak. They can't do anything. In other words, they want a God that will not threaten their convenience. We want a God that makes us comfortable. We want a God that makes us convenient. We want a God on our own terms. We want a God we can create, we can manipulate, we can control. We don't want a God that makes demands on our lives. We don't want a God that speaks to us from the mountain. We just want to get to the promised land quickly and conveniently and not have to worry about all this other stuff. So we're going to make a a dead idol here that doesn't do anything. So let me ask you a question. Have you made the same grave mistake the Israelites have made? Have you made your convenience and your comfort an idol? Have you tried to manipulate God to fit onto your timetable? Do you want a God that doesn't threaten your security so you want a domesticated God for your own personal comfort? You see, they put all their hope in a God that couldn't deliver. This God can't deliver. It's, 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 it's a golden bull that has no power. And yet they believe that somehow this God has got the power to lead them into the promised land. They thought this God would give them security. This God would give them meaning. This God would give them purpose. And really what the result was, it was perverse, it was corrupt, it was stiff-necked, it was rebellious. And God's anger burns hot against them. Which leads us to our third issue. Thirdly, we discover, so we've looked at the root 
of idolatry. We've looked at the result of idolatry. Now let's look at the response to idolatry. This is God's response to idolatry. Obviously in verse 10 he says, Moses, leave me alone. I want to burn hot against Israel and I want to start over. Really what he does there is he makes three demands. Uh, The Lord says three things there in verse 10. Leave me alone, Moses, that number one, my wrath may burn hot against them. Number two, I want to consume them. And number three, I want to start over with you. Okay, three things there. And as we'll see as we read verses 11 through 14, Moses turns around to God and says, hey, let me just give you three things to think about, God. Okay, here we go. Verses 11 through 14. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. The important thing for you to see here is that Moses emerges as a mediator, an intercessor. What's he do? He prays, he intercedes, he stands in the gap for the people and says, God, listen, I don't want you to start over with me. I don't want your anger to burn hot against against Israel. And so Moses gives three arguments or three reasons why God shouldn't do this. Here's the first argument. He says, God, why should you cancel out your divine power that you showed in delivering the Israelites out of the Red Sea by turning around and destroying them? It doesn't make sense, God. You've shown great power in delivering them just to turn around and to kill them. Why would you want to do that, God? Number two, why would you want the Egyptians to be all excited that you've killed the Israelites? They're their arch enemy. It doesn't make any sense, God, for you to bring the Israelites out of Egyptian captivity just to kill them so the Egyptians can sit there and say, Great job, God. We're glad you did that. But most importantly, the one thing that Moses does is say, listen, God, remember, you made a covenant. You made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You swore to them a covenant that you would give them the promised land. If you destroy them now, you are going against the very oath that you swore to give them the land. And God relented. And God relented from bringing his wrath and consuming them. So Moses stands in the gap as a mediator and prays for the people and reminds God of his covenant faithfulness to the people and God relents from his wrath. God does not destroy them. God does not burn against them. God does not start over with Moses. But just because God says, I'm relenting from my wrath, doesn't mean that God doesn't bring his fatherly discipline. Let's see discipline here. The third thing I want us to see, I'm sorry, the fourth thing I want us to see here is the opportunity to repent from idolatry. So we've seen the root of idolatry, the result of idolatry, the response to idolatry. Now let's see the opportunity to repent from idolatry. This is the longest section, but let's read verses 15 through 29. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. 
When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you've brought up such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people. They're set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. And as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. And so I said, Let anyone have gold, take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and poof, out came this calf. <laughs> Paraphrasing a little bit, but I think that's the point. And Moses saw that the people had broken loose. For Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you've been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his own son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Now, Moses and Joshua come down the mountain, and what do they hear? Sounds like a battle. Sounds like just this loud noise. And really, think about in your mind what, what probably was going on. Think about the sounds of revelry. Drinking songs. People partying. Women screaming because men are chasing them. Men getting in fights over women. Men getting in fights over food. Men getting in fights over drink. There's just mayhem going all over the place. And Joshua's thinking, man, there must be a battle going on down there. He says, Moses, it's not a battle. The people are singing. There's mayhem going on down there. That's why it's so loud. And verse 19 is very significant. What do we see in verse 19? As soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Now, we know at times Moses could have anger issues, but I don't think this is where he's erupting with out-of-control anger. I think this is a very strategic, I think this is a very symbolic, I think this is a very premeditated act that he does to let the whole nation know something. He goes to the base of the mountain, the mountain where they had pledged just days before that they would give God their full allegiance, and Moses stands up symbolically in front of everybody and throws down the covenant, breaks it in two as a symbolic and powerful way to tell the people, you've just broken the covenant with your God. It's broken. The covenant is physically broken the way that you have physically and spiritually broken it by your idolatry. And I'm doing it on the base of this mountain because just days earlier, at the base of this mountain, you said that you would worship the Lord. Listen to what Exodus 19, 7 through 8 says. Moses came and called the elders of the people of Israel and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do in unison, one people. And Moses says, just days before, you had pledged that, and now 
you've broken your covenant. And then in an act of discipline, Moses does something very interesting. He's like, I'm going to get rid of this idol. I could have gone and just burned up this idol and taken it out to a, to a, to a burn, burn pit or something out, outside the camp, but I'm going to do something different. I'm going to make you drink it. So he grinds up the golden calf and puts it in their drinking water. Now, we don't know how Moses did this. I don't know if he made everybody line up and drink it, or it could have just been it was in their drinking water. And every time they drank it, and it tasted nasty, it was a reminder that that idol that you had was nasty. And that, I, that pardon the, the graphic, but that, that stuff's going to go through you and come out. And it's going to be nasty to remind you just how nasty that idol was and how nasty it was that you broke the covenant. And then Moses confronts Aaron in verses 21 through 24, and Aaron takes no accountability. Aaron's this innocent bystander. Moses, you know the people. Moses, it's the people. Uh, he plays the blame game. And then he's just like, it's like, th- th- this, this calf just kind of just, just appeared, Moses. I, I really don't know. I, I mean, I threw, it in the, I threw it in the fire, and just out it came. No, Aaron, it took you a couple days to do that, and you fashioned it, and you took the stylus and the engraving tool, and you made the detail You've been blinded into peer pressure. You're playing the blame game. You're not taking personal responsibility. You're justifying yourself. It's the people. It's somebody else. I'm a victim. How often do you do that? When you're caught in sin, do you play the blame game? Oh, I'm just a victim. It's just my circumstances. I was just born that way. It's somebody else's fault. It just kind of happened. That's the same game Aaron's playing with Moses. And look at verse 25. Very interesting language there. Verse 25, And Moses saw the people had broken loose. Broken loose. Think about all the words that have been used so far to describe idolatry. It was perverse. It was corrupting. They had quickly turned aside. They'd become stiff-necked. They were rebellious. They were reveling. They were up and playing. There was debauchery. The only word Moses can say is that all blank has broken loose. I'm not going to say the word, but that's basically what Moses is saying. They have broken loose. They are out of control. It is mayhem upon mayhem. And then Moses does something very interesting under God's orders that we need to understand here. He says, Levites, who's on my side? Who's on the Lord's side? Levites say we are. Okay, Levites, get your swords and go through the camp and start killing people. Now, at first glance, we would think, wow, that's pretty shocking. Let me tell you what it's not. First of all, it's not a permission for us to go kill people if we disagree with them, okay? This is not Sharia law or some type of Muslim way that we, we, we beat people into submission. This, this is an Old Testament thing where, where we're not allowed to go start slicing people up because they're engaged in idolatry, okay? So this is not permission for us to go do that. Number two, which is even more important, This is not some random willy-nilly act of the the Levites going out and just killing people. The text says they went to and fro, gate to gate, throughout the camp. How many people died? 3,000. How many Israelites were there at this time? Probably more than 2 million. So that means out of 2 million people, 3,000 did not repent. Here's the issue. The Levites went door to door to see who was still practicing idolatry. They went door to door to see who was willing to to repent. And those that weren't repenting, those that were still holding on to their idols, those were the ones they killed. It wasn't just this random, I'm going to kill people. There was a specific go to and fro, gate to gate, search for those that were still 
not repenting. So here's the point. Even in the midst of discipline, God still gave them an opportunity to repent. There's still time to repent. There's still an opportunity to repent. Romans chapter 2, 4 through 5 says this. Paul writes, Do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, when you survey the Bible from Genesis to to, to Revelation, and there are a few minor exceptions, but for the most part, when you look at the landscape of the Bible, God almost always gives people a time to repent. There's always his hand of repentance being granted to sinners. And this passage says it was his kindness that's supposed to lead you to repentance. And so when God is kind to you, when God doesn't judge you, when God doesn't discipline you, when things bad don't happen to you, it's not an excuse for you to keep on doing the bad thing, to keep on doing the sin. It's a way for you to wake up and say, God's been kind. I better repent and stop doing those things because something worse could happen. So here's the question for you. In the midst of your idolatry right now, has God been kind to you? Has God withheld some discipline that he should be meeting out upon you this morning? As a heavenly father, as a loving father, but he can discipline you. Has God in his grace sent to you a word of warning? Be thankful for those people that get in your face at times and give you words of warning. Those are acts of God's grace. He could very easily not send those people to you. Would you rather have a person come to you and confront your sin so they give you an opportunity to repent or God never to send that person and you suffer his discipline? I'd rather have the person come and confront me, as hard as that may be. Now let's retrace our steps for a moment. What's the root of idolatry? It's insecurity, it's fear, it's impatience and frustration. What's the result of idolatry? It's corrupting, it's perversion, it's stiff-necked, it's rebellion, it's, it's out of control, breaking loose. What's God's response to idolatry? Well, he wanted, to, he wanted to kill them. He wanted to, to pour out his wrath, but Moses stood as a mediator and said, God, don't do that. Moses prays for the people, gives them an opportunity to repent. But there's one final issue, and it's a gospel issue. We've seen the root. We've seen the result. We've seen the response. We've seen the repentance. Now, finally, let's see the redeemer of your idolatry. Verses 30 through 35. The next day Moses said to the people, You've sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you've written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever is sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Now there's still justice. There's still, there's still some discipline. There was a plague sent upon the people in, in addition to the drinking water and the killing of these 3,000 people. But I want you to notice something that Moses is doing here. The first time Moses prayed for the people, 
He was an intercessor. He said, God, please relent from your anger. He was a prayer. He prayed for the people. But here, Moses takes it a step further and says, God, their sin is so great. My prayer's not enough. We need to make atonements. We need to actually kill an animal and sacrifice an animal to appease your wrath, God. We need to make atonement. And Moses says something pretty awesomely scary. But it shows the passion of his heart for these lost Israelites that are, that are in rebellion. What does he say there? In verse 32, he says, God, I'm willing for my name to even be blotted out of the book. I'm willing to actually take the punishment of these Israelites because I know their sin is so great that there needs to be atonement. There needs to be complete forgiveness. There needs to be a complete covering of sin. And in verse 33, we see God's answer. Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. That's a serious charge. If you have sinned against God, you will die. If you sin against God, you will incur his wrath. But what does Moses do? Moses says, I'm going to make atonement for the people. Moses emerges as the great mediator of the Old Testament. He prayed for the people. He made atonement for the people. All throughout the book of Genesis, Exodus, I mean, actually Exodus through, through Deuteronomy, Moses is praying for the people, making atonement for the people. Praying for the people, making atonement for the people so that God's anger does not burn against them. He's the great mediator of the Old Testament. Who's the great mediator of the New Testament? Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ made a full atonement on the cross to do what? To save us from the wrath of God. Jesus is the only one qualified to stand in our gap, to stand in our place, to be the representative. Jesus is the only one qualified to be there and say, I will incur all of your wrath, God. Blot my name out. I will take all of the punishment. Jesus is the only one qualified to do that. And when he did that on the cross, he made atonement. And he cried out, it is finished. It's a complete atonement. He stood in the gap. So your sins could be forgiven. So you could have a right relationship with God so that you would not have to experience eternal punishment away from the presence of God forever. Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy 2, 5-6. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. There's one mediator. His name is Jesus. So here's what the danger of idolatry happens when we look at this passage of Scripture. Fearful insecurity oftentimes leads you to replace God for an idol. And what does God give you? God gives you faithful security. You see, you commit idolatry when you're afraid, when you're insecure, when you're fearful when your comfort is threatened, when you're impatient, when you want to see physical proof of God working in your life and you don't want to live by by faith, you want to live by sight. And what happens is you begin to make this damning exchange. You say in your heart of hearts, everything that I can have in Christ is not enough for me. His joy, his peace, his security, his comfort, his majesty, his beauty, his glory is not enough for me. 
So I'm going to exchange all that Christ is for something that I've created to give me what I think he can give me. And so I'm going to find security and comfort and joy and peace. I'm going to try to find it in these idols. But every time I do that, these idols come up short. And my heart is empty. And I want to cling to something. But I want to cling to these idols instead of clinging to Jesus. That's a damning exchange. Because basically what you're saying is Jesus is not enough. Only Jesus, by his grace, can overcome that root of idolatry. Only he can give you the security that you're looking for. Only Jesus can overcome the result of idolatry. Only he can overcome that perversion, that corruption, and that rebellion. Only he can give you the the heart to repent and turn toward the Lord. Only Jesus is your redeemer. And so here's what happens. When you're tempted to want to trade in all that Jesus is for a created thing, and you're tempted to find security, not in Jesus, but in a, in a created thing, whether that's a good thing, I want you to do something. I want you just to remember Jesus and how he's been faithful to you in the past, how he's met your need in the past, how he's been there for you in the past, how he's answered your prayer in the past, how he's given you joy and peace deep in your heart in the past, and most fully, how he died on the cross for you in the past. And when you ever doubt God's love for you and you ever want to find security in something else besides Jesus, just fix your eyes on him and remember how much he truly loves you. And when you do that, your heart will cling to him for security and purpose and meaning as opposed to created things that will always let you down. They will never satisfy the way that King Jesus will satisfy Your heart will want Jesus above all things when your eyes are fixed upon him and not on your idols. So let me say it like John said it earlier. Little children, and that includes me, keep yourself from idols. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. Is there an idol in your heart that you're clinging to? that you need to repent of this morning? Is there an idol that you're trying to find security in that's not Jesus? Do you have some fears and frustrations and impatience this morning and instead of trusting in Christ, you're trusting in something else to give you hope and security? Would you go before him this morning and and like We said earlier, God gives us an opportunity to repent. Go before him this morning and repent and find his arms stretched open and look at the one mediator, Jesus, who's your redeemer and died in your place. Spend some time going before him this morning, confessing your sin of idolatry. As we come before you this morning, we we want to confess in our heart of hearts that, Jesus, we want you. We treasure you. We value you. We find our security in you. We find our comfort and our joy and our all in all in you. Lord, we don't want to go to substitutes. We don't want to go to other places. We don't want to trade all that we have in you for something that doesn't satisfy. We don't want to be guilty of making a golden calf in our life that may lead us to rebellion, to being stiff-necked and to quickly turning aside of corruption. We want to find our joy in you.
So this morning, we need your help because we can't do this in our own power. We need the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit of the living God, would you fall fresh on us this morning? Would you turn our hearts back to God? Would you grant us repentance? Would you give us the strength to be able to turn from our idols and trust in the living God? Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes to the beauty of all that Jesus is for us? And will we be so captivated and so amazed by that that nothing else in this world would compare? And that we wouldn't want to go anyplace else because we found everything that we need, everything our heart desires in you, Jesus. Thank you for your love. Thank you for being the one mediator between God and man. That Jesus, you stood in the gap on our place. You prayed for us. You, you atoned for us. You stood in our place. You substituted yourself for us when we never could so that we would never have to experience the justice of God, but we would experience forgiveness and eternal life. And for that, we are forever thankful, King Jesus. We love you. We honor you. Give us the strength, Holy Spirit, this week to keep ourselves from idols. In the power of the Holy Spirit, to the glory of the Father, in the name of Jesus the Son, we pray these things. Amen.